Please pray with me. Father God, unless You fill them, my words are inadequate. Unless You speak, it's better to be silent. Come and speak. Come and use me, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. What what do you do? What do you do when the darkness falls? Where do you turn when everything is caving in on you and all hope seems to vanish and be gone? When you where do you turn when you're tempted to believe that even God himself has turned against you. That's the sort of mood that the book of Ruth, our our Old Testament reading today, opens up in. Think about Naomi's plight for a moment. Because of a famine in Judah, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, took her and her children off to the land of Moab because they'd heard there was food there. And it seems their their plan was just to stay there for a couple of years until the famine subsided in Judah and Israel and they could go back home, back to their people, back to their culture, back to a way of life that they understood better. In a time of great hardship and a a time of great darkness. It was a hard decision. It's hard enough to uproot, but go to a place where the language isn't quite the same and the culture isn't quite the same and the view of life and eternity isn't quite the same and a different God. That's hard. And I wonder if maybe in the midst of all those decisions, if God just seemed to be silent. It also would have been a dangerous journey. You know, think of of roving bands of robbers that were like pirates of the land. The roads were subject to them. When Naomi and and Elimelech got to Moab, they they found a culture a bit similar, but still different from their own. They're always still aliens there. They never quite fit in. They're always the people who just seem to dress a little odd and, and people who talked a little differently, different words, different accent. They were people who didn't understand the nuances of that culture, which means they were set up to be taken advantage of by people who did know the nuances of the culture. Of course, that happens today still, doesn't it? It's hard to be the alien. It's hard to be the outsider. Most importantly, Naomi and Elimelech were people who worshipped the God of Israel. The people they now lived among worshipped Chemish and other gods 
And you know, in that time, there was a sense, and you can see bits and pieces of this in the, the Old Testament, that people believed that gods are kind of geographically oriented, and they reigned over a piece of the of land. And when you left one piece of land for another piece of land, it made sense to come over here and worship the God who is in control of this piece of land where you're living now. The uh, Syrian officer who was healed of leprosy, uh, Naaman, took dirt back from Israel so that he could worship God properly when he went back to Syria. It's that same kind of thinking. And so there was this tremendous temptation upon Elimelech and, and Naomi and their sons to worship the God of the land they went to rather than the God of Israel, the true God. It's hard. It was dark. And then after a few years, it got darker because Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. She became a widow. And with that, more darkness fell into Naomi's life. And in the culture of the Near East, being a widow, we really can't conceive of it in our culture. You lost all your power. You couldn't go to court. You couldn't sue. You couldn't stand up for yourself. You couldn't protect yourself legally. But fortunately, Naomi had, had two sons. And these sons were old enough that they could represent her in court, that they could stand up for her rights. But being that old, that meant they also were old enough to be married. And they weren't in Israel. They weren't in Judah. They were in Moab. And so they married Moabite women. And this can be a huge problem. In fact, in every other section of the Old Testament, it was always a snare. Because the wives would get the husbands worshiping the false gods, the idols. But it's to the credit of Naomi and Elimelech that these sons apparently didn't do that. In fact, they got their wives to worship the God of Israel. One of the wives, her name was Orpah, and the other, her name was Ruth, the one for whom the book is, is named. But then, even more darkness fell into their lives, because after about ten years, both of Naomi's sons also died. And they died without leaving any children. And in the Old Testament world, that's a double curse. Being childless is a curse, and an early death is a curse. And here's Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. Three widows. And Ruth in a foreign land where she didn't really understand the culture. And they had no defense. They had no one to stand up for them. They had no one to speak for them in the courts. It's hard for us to conceive how helpless they were. Three widows. One was old. Two were young. One was an Israelite. Two were Moabites. And despite their differences, 
these three women had come to love each other and care for each other. But still the darkness had fallen on them and fallen on them hard and they had lost everything. Especially Naomi. And that culture, whether they stayed together or separated, it didn't really matter. They were in trouble. They were defenseless. And guys, this is still true in most of the world today where Christianity hasn't become an influence in that culture yet. It must have felt absolutely desperate to those women. And it was desperate. It truly was. The darkness had fallen on them. And where was God? Where was justice? Where was compassion? Where was hope? The darkness had fallen, but had fallen especially hard on Naomi. Naomi had lost the most, and she was far from home, far from her people, far from her culture, far from her land, far far from the temple of her God. Her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruthah, and Ruth rather, they could remarry. They could have children. Things could get better for them. But what would there be for Naomi? She's too old. Yeah, for Naomi, the darkness had fallen. It had fallen hard. What do you do when the darkness falls in on you? Where do you turn? What do you cling to? How, how do you hope? What do you do? What do you do when it looks like even God's against you? That's how it was for Naomi. Listen to how she describes her situation to her daughters-in-law in the 13th verse of the first chapter. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord Himself has raised His fist against me. Wow. Have you been there? Have you ever been where your heart cries out that even God seems to be against you? Eventually, eventually word came to Naomi that, well, perhaps from a traveler, perhaps from, from a merchant, word came to her that there was again food back in Israel, that Bethlehem again had prosperity and the crops were coming in. And Naomi decided to return to Israel, to return to Bethlehem. And the common translation of Bethlehem is house of bread. Scripture doesn't say if she prayed about it or not. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. But returning was a logical choice. 
She could go back to the land where she knew and understood the culture. And maybe, just maybe, relatives might have pity on her and give her some assistance. It wasn't likely to happen in a strange land. But maybe, just maybe at home. But again, it would be a hard and dangerous journey. But I think perhaps in her despair, it just seemed like the best choice. It would have been a dangerous journey for a man, for an older woman traveling alone. Oh my gosh. It would really be hard. In the ancient world, it was customary for loved ones to accompany friends on the first leg of a journey and then when they got to a certain point, turn back. And It's not totally clear if Orpah and, and Ruth were just planning to accompany Naomi for a bit and turn back or, or if they really were thinking of, yeah, we'll go with you. What's there for us here? But at some point, Naomi tells him to turn back. Go back to your own homes. Go back to your own parents. There's still an opportunity for you guys to marry again. Somebody from your own culture. Ruth 1, chapter, verse 8. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes. And may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? What would be there for you there? Even in her pain, even in her grief, even in her despair, even in the midst of the darkness that had fallen upon her, Naomi was concerned for her daughters-in-law. She loved them. She wanted the best possible life for them. She thought it might be by going back. She was going back to her home. They should probably go back to their home too. Orpah accepts Naomi's advice to go back. But Ruth, Ruth doesn't. Verse 14, And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should go back too. You should do the same. Naomi must have been an amazing mother-in-law to have that kind of devotion. But Ruth refuses to part from Naomi and makes what is arguably the tenderest profession of love and commitment that has ever been recorded. It's been used in marriage vows for thousands of years. Verse 16, but Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, 
I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. And so the two women made that dangerous trip together. Naomi back to her own culture and her own way of life. And Ruth away from hers. Still, the darkness and the despair were overwhelming. Naomi had left Bethlehem with a husband and two sons and now was returning with a fellow widow, another helpless person. What would lie ahead of them? What would be there for them? Reading the text, it's possible to see that the years had been so hard on Naomi and her grief and her sadness were so great that nobody recognized her when she got back home. And so in verse 19, so the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Remember, it's a small town. Is it really Naomi? The woman asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. They'd made it. They'd made it safely back to Naomi's land, Naomi's people, Naomi's culture. But she was still sad and bitter and empty and hurt. And I'm guessing probably angry. In the ancient world, names were real words with real meanings. And Naomi is translated pleasant or sweet. Mara is bitter. Don't call me pleasant sweet. Call me bitter. Because God's made my life bitter. Wow. You know, it is so easy for pain and tragedy to turn us away from God. I've sometimes said it's like we have this universal equation, and it doesn't matter if you're a believer or not. We think if you do A and you do B, something owes us C. And if we don't get C, we get angry. And no doubt... Naomi was saying, I did this, I did that, I've been faithful to God. What did I get for it? I'm empty. And bitter. And angry. Down through the centuries, so many atheists are not atheists because of an intellectual argument. They're atheists because they got angry at God. 
because he didn't do what they thought he owed them. And that still happens today. What do you do when the darkness falls? How do you respond? How does your faith handle the pain? In his book, In Two Minds, Oz Guinness says that sometimes God asks us to hold on to Him in faith, to hold on to Him, even when it seems like God is wearing the uniform of the enemy. Where is God when everything is falling apart or, or worse, when it looks like He is making everything fall apart in your life? When it looks like He is wearing the uniform of the enemy, when it appears that He is a traitor to all that you believed in about Him? What do you do? Where is God then? There was at least one good thing that happened. Probably intentionally, but they arrived just at the beginning of the, the barley harvest, which is the first harvest. It would be followed by the wheat harvest. All in all, about four months of harvest. Perhaps, perhaps they were thinking they could glean some of the harvest and not have to starve, not have to depend on charity. But there are also some real dangers there. The Scriptures, the, the Word, the Law had commanded that people make allowance for the poor to glean, to pick up what's left behind, to, to gather up what got left by the, the gatherers. In fact, they were not to harvest in the corners of the field for that very purpose, so that there would be food that the poor could earn by, by gathering. But not everybody permitted that. Not everybody followed the law. And gleaners could often be attacked in the ancient world. Driven off. Abused. Despised. There was a risk. But it was their best shot. And so Ruth came to Naomi and said, Can we go out? And can I go out and glean? So where is God in this story? Did He seem silent? Where is, where is God in your story? Right now, is He maybe seeming silent? Or is He speaking to you? You know, years ago, it's been credited to an Anglican, a British bishop, and I don't recall the name. The phrase, the coincidence, is when God works a miracle and chooses to remain anonymous. Coincidence is when God works a miracle and chooses to remain anonymous. And so Ruth sets out to glean. And by coincidence... She starts to glean in the field of a rich man named Boaz, who was also a compassionate man. And when he came to visit his field and see how the work was going, he asked the foreman about Ruth because he'd noticed her and didn't know who she was. And so in the chapter 2, verse 5, Then Boaz asked this foreman, 
Who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, She's the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Now apparently this impressed Boaz. He went over and said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they're harvesting, and then follow them. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you're thirsty, help yourself to the water they've drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied. But I also know everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you've done. Boaz, the owner of the field, didn't know Ruth by sight, but in that small town of Bethlehem, he knew her reputation already. He knew that she was a good woman. And now his foreman was telling Boaz what a diligent worker she was. And he's impressed. I suspect also she was good looking and that didn't hurt either. <laughs> Boaz made sure that Ruth was able to gleam a surprisingly large amount of grain that day. What a coincidence, right? A generous man, right? When Ruth got home, Naomi asked her about the grain and in whose field she had gleaned that day. And when Ruth told Naomi the man's name, Naomi told her that Boaz was actually a close relative and that he could be a, a kinsman redeemer, someone who could be asked, even, even socially pressured, to marry Ruth. What a coincidence, right? A kinsman redeemer, right? Huh. Over the four months of the harvest season for the barley and then the wheat, Boaz continued to show his admiration and his compassion, his kindness towards Ruth. And eventually, Naomi began to coach Ruth on exactly how she could approach Boaz and say that as a kinsman redeemer... I would like you to marry me. Hmm. The short version, well, let me tell you, it's a bit complicated how that all plays out. But the short version of it is that Boaz was absolutely delighted. And he does marry her. And because Boaz is a man of compassion and respect, Naomi is also provided for her in her old age. And Ruth, Ruth who was previously childless, Ruth who was previously barren, has a son. And Naomi, a grandson. Chapter 4.13, So Boaz took Ruth into his house, and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. 
Then the women of the town, the same women of the town, when remember she said, don't call me Naomi, don't call me sweet, call me bitter because God has made my life bitter. Those same women said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast. And she cared for him as if she was his own. And so in what had been up until now a very sad story of disaster and hardship, there's happiness at last. But you know, there's another deeper lesson here. A more profound lesson. That you and I, we can see it, we can read it, but the people who lived this story would have been clueless about. They never lived to see what all of this meant. You see, no matter what happens in our lives, as God's children, you and I, we are part of God's story. We are part of the redemption of this world. The redemption that God Himself is writing. Sentence by sentence. Word by word. Punctuation by punctuation. And each of us has a part in that. Our roles in the events of our lives, even the sad events, even when the darkness comes crashing in, our roles are the events when darkness falls so hard that it seems to crush the very life out of us. Our roles may have an impact far bigger and far greater than our own personal stories could ever hope to contain. In the next verse, we read this. Verse 7 of chapter 4. The neighbor women said, Now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the grandfather of David. But David is King David. But none of the people in this story could have known that. God had been directing their steps. And at the time, they didn't know it. God was doing something bigger than they were. And at the time, they didn't know it. Don't you know there are certainly times when God is also directing our steps and sometimes when we are clueless, when we don't know it, we don't see it, we don't feel it in the midst of the moment. But still He's there. Still He's at work. Still He's unfolding things that we can't yet look into. Unfolding them in our lives and the events around us. And we don't see it yet. And just as the size of a shadow can greatly exceed the size of the object casting the shadow, the events of our lives, even in the dark times when seen, when illuminated by the glory of God, cast a shadow bigger than the events themselves. 
And we may never know it. We may never perceive it. This side of eternity. So what do we do when the darkness falls and when it falls hard on us? We keep trusting God anyway. We keep trusting God even in the very midst of the darkness. We keep trusting Him because He is weaving the story and weaving a meaning far bigger and far greater than any of our individual stories. And in this life, we may never see it unfold. For we and the events of our lives are each a stitch or two stitches or three stitches in the grand tapestry of God's story of salvation. And until it is revealed, until the tapestry is unfolded, we may never fully know the significance of each stitch, each event in our lives. So keep trusting. Keep trusting God. He's weaving a story bigger than you or I could ever Imagine. Amen.